0: We're working through this series, uh, looking at the life of Joseph. uh, And also at the same time, like every time we step into the Bible, what we're looking to do is not just simply to look at something from history, something that's interesting, but we believe that God's Word, the Bible, uh, is shaped in a way which, in all of its different aspects, in all of the narratives, in all of the instructions, in all of the songs of praise, in all of the words of wisdom, They are appropriate and applicable for us today. They have something to say to us today. Uh, And I guess in lots of ways, although it seems so distant, uh, the story of Joseph is incredibly relevant in lots of ways for us. Here's Joseph, if we remember the story from the very beginning. He He was the youngest son of Jacob, He had his brothers around him and he was very clear on his heritage. He knew the history and he knew the uniqueness of God who had delivered a message to his uh, uh, great-grandfather Abraham and then through Isaac and then through Jacob. And he knew the significance of the message of the living God. And yet, he finds himself outside of that context of being surrounded only by those who understood that, and he finds himself placed in a world which is so completely unaware, and if it was aware, would have been resistant to that message. In fact, if we look at the subsequent story of Joseph, what we do find is that the Egyptian empire becomes resistant to the message of the living God. But that's for another time. Uh, what we are seeing is that he's in a situation cut off in lots of ways from all of the, that support network, I guess. Uh, and then I look at that and I think, well, we're not totally cut off. We have uh, other people who might believe in the message of the Bible, who have faith in Jesus Christ. And yet at the same time, we're in a context which culturally, uh, from a society point of view, There is no uh, commitment on a society level to living this life uh, of faith in Jesus Christ. And so to some extent, we ask the question, well, how should we live? How do we live? What is an appropriate way of living? How do we uh, focus our minds? What are the things that are important to us? Uh, And Joseph has a lot to say to us. The first thing that we see as we hit into this uh, next section of the story is there is an incredible span of time. We left Joseph at the last, end of the last chapter, chapter 40, with what looked like hope. Why was he in prison? Because of his commitment to a life standard and a life pattern which was faithful to Yahweh, the God of the Bible. The result of that is that when he was uh, faced with his uh, boss's wife, who was making sexual advances towards him, he was more faithful to God than fearful of her power, and he ended up in prison. He ended up in the dungeon. Uh, What happened subsequently is, he interprets once again this picture of two dreams. Uh, The cupbearer and the baker come into the prison. He interprets their dreams... Uh, they come true exactly as Joseph had said. Uh, the cupbearer is elevated once again to being at the right hand side of Pharaoh, literally the right hand side of Pharaoh, drinking whatever drink is presented to him, protecting Pharaoh by putting his life at stake so that he would be poisoned rather than Pharaoh. And the baker is impaled. He dies exactly as the dreams that Joseph interpreted uh, came true. Uh, The hope was that the words that he said to the cupbearer and to the baker is, Remember me when you are back in your place of status. Now that would have been, for Joseph, a great hope, wouldn't it? Within three days, the cupbearer is elevated. You might think it might take maybe a week or a couple of weeks for the cupbearer to find the right moment to raise the subject with Pharaoh about this person who had been very good to him in prison and with the power that he had to free him and liberate him. And yet what we find is at the beginning of this chapter, when two full years had passed, he's still in prison. That's amazing, isn't it? I think that speaks incredibly powerfully to our situation again and again and again. How often do we find that what we are concerned about, the issues that we face, they do not relieve. We do not get relief. We do not find as if we get out of things. We are always seemingly pushed beyond our ability to sustain. And yet what we find is that we are sustained. We don't think we can be sustained and yet we are sustained. And Joseph finds himself in that situation. Two years... He's still in prison, and yet what we see is that at the end of two years, another incredible event takes place. Another two dreams. Another two dreams takes place. This time, at the very highest level in the land, two dreams take place. How often the key narratives in the Bible remind us of this, that we're taken to a point very often in our Christian lives, in a walk of faith, where we are reminded that the incidents, the situations, cannot possibly be anything other than God's hand on the situation, and we are stripped of any opportunity to believe that it was because of the power of us or that person or the other situation. Again and again we're taken to the point where we realize it could not be anything other than God dealing with our lives. God having his hand on us. That we're we're reached the point where we say it has to be. Because God is intervening. I reckon when there was a message that came down, as we see the story unfold, the message comes down to the prison that Pharaoh has had two dreams, or rather at that time, I guess, Pharaoh wants to see you. Joseph, what kind of a, what kind of a demand was that? Uh, Pharaoh wants to see you. And then he hears that there were two more dreams. Well, that is like this, this kind of great big flag flying, isn't it? if we've got any sensitivity to the way the story is unfolding, we are seeing that God is speaking. God is engaging here and here and here. Two dreams, two dreams, two dreams. It's God who's the author of this story. It is God who is the author of this story. It is God who holds this situation in His hand. It it was a long reading... But we're covering an even longer section, so I'll tell you the whole of the story as it unfolded. What we see is that uh, Pharaoh has these two dreams. Uh, seven healthy cows are devoured by seven very sickly cows. Uh, and very six, seven very healthy stalks of corn are, are uh, devoured by very seven very sickly um, stalks of corn. Nobody can answer the meaning of these dreams. It's significant, isn't it? That Pharaoh knows that there is a significance. I I think the way that the narrator constructs what happened is that he has this dream about seven cows. And he wakes up and then he goes back to sleep and he has another dream about seven something else. I don't know about your dreams vivid, my dreams can be vivid, really graphically, horribly, scarily vivid at times, but when our dreams are vivid, they're powerful, aren't they? And what Pharaoh sees there is seven, again, this seven motif that comes up in these two uh, dreams. Nobody can answer. Pharaoh goes to all of the available wisdom in the land, which in his elevated position, of course, was Everybody. He can access any available wisdom in the land, he thinks, uh, and so he does. And yet nothing can be brought to him to answer the situation. And it's at that point in time where the cupbearer remembers. He remembers, I've forgotten the fact that this Hebrew, this Hebrew down in prison, had interpreted our dreams I wonder whether the cupbearer had a bit of a moment of a shiver up the spine when he hears that Pharaoh's had two dreams and we had two dreams. Each of us. I lived, he died. Pharaoh's had two dreams. There's a significance here, isn't there? And the cupbearer had one of those moments and he says, I remember and now there was this Hebrew who's probably still, who's still in prison, and he is the interpreter of dreams. Joseph is brought up. He's part exalted at this stage. He's, it's interesting that he's taken out of prison. The first thing that they do is they, uh, they shave his beard and they cut his hair and he, he's, he's made presentable. He's made presentable because he's going into the presence of Pharaoh. And he goes into that presence... Uh, and he interprets the dreams. Uh, and then he gives advice as an outcome of the, the interpretation. The interpretation is significant, but the plan is even more significant. The interpretation is, yes, seven, is, seven and seven are significant. And seven and seven is significant because there's going to be seven years which are going to be plentiful, and then there's going to be seven years which are going to be disastrous. There is going to be a famine in the land. Well, that's great information, isn't it? You can, you can plan. You can do something about that. Uh, And so his advice straight off the back of the interpretation is that Pharaoh should seek somebody wise in the land so that preparation could be made during the seven years uh, and as a result of the outcome of those seven years they would be sustained during the next seven years. And Pharaoh says, wisdom in the land, you're the guy. You're the wisdom in the land. That's a big statement that he's making, isn't it? He's he's effectively saying, wisdom, that's where it is, and therefore you are now wholly exalted. See that initially he's kind of made presentable, and then he's really exalted. He's dressed in the appropriate uh, garb of the vizier of the land of Egypt, this second in power and second in authority, right at the very peak uh, of the Egyptian empire, we have God's spokesperson at that level in society. Uh, And it concludes with this amazing statement where Pharaoh says in verse 40, you shall be in charge of my palace and all my people are to submit to your orders. Only with respect to the throne will I be greater than you. Does that sound familiar? As it should sound familiar, because it's exactly the words pretty much that Potiphar uses with regards to Joseph. If he was exalted in Potiphar's house to the level where everything was under the hand of Joseph, then exactly the same is now across the whole of the land of Egypt. And he is now at this elevated position. He is married into aristocracy. In other words, his presence is secured in the land by his marriage into aristocracy. Uh, And then he has children with a heritage. During the time of the uh, years of plenty, his wife, uh, Asenatha, has children. I'm going to come on uh, to those in a few minutes' time. And the plan is blessed. That's the other significant thing. It's all right to have a plan, isn't it? You can have all the plans in the world uh, if you're not if you're not able to actually execute the plan, then you're in trouble. You can be the most fantastic designer of uh, beautiful furniture or whatever it might be, but if you can't wield the tools to create the outcome, the whole of the project is not yours and yet Joseph not only is able to give the plan. He's able to execute the plan and the plan is blessed. The outcome is that the Egyptian people are protected from famine because of what Joseph plans. What happens is he plans for during those seven years a quantity, a regular quantity is consistently gathered in, brought in, is stored as a uh, archaeologist called David Roll who believes that he's probably found the storehouses of Joseph uh, in Egypt. That's his argument Whether whether it's true or not. He argues that he believes that this archaeological evidence is the storehouses of Joseph where the grain was stored so that during those seven years, subsequent years of incredible famine, they were protected. What does this say, again, so that we just remind ourselves? Is this uh, God who kind of cleverly knows the future? (laughs) It is way more than that, isn't it? It's not saying that God cleverly knows the way the future is going to pan out. You can't just Interpret something for 14 years uh, as we saw last week and then hope it might come true. You actually have to have the authority, the sovereignty, the supreme power to then enact what the outcome will be to secure. So, who's the plan behind the plan? It's God. Once again, the God of Joseph in the land of Egypt is the one who is working out all of these two all of these things i think there's a few things that we can see as we look at this whole picture the first thing that we see the two dreams are god's voice aren't they the two dreams are god's voice we saw joseph had two dreams at the very beginning what were those dreams dreams of Sheaves of corn bowing down to a sheaf of corn. One sheaf of corn was going to be exalted. Taken to a level where other sheaves of corn would bow down to that sheaf of corn. We probably, most of us, know the story of Joseph, but if we didn't, we're beginning to see that that dream back there is being fulfilled. That dream back there is being fulfilled. How is it being fulfilled? It's being fulfilled by the fact that Joseph is planted in Egypt, in the house of Potiphar, and it is necessary. It is necessary for Joseph to end up in that prison, so that he will be elevated to the exalted role in the whole of the land of Egypt, so that he will be in the place of exaltation where the first dreams might be possible. Isn't it amazing, the voice of God? Pharaoh knew the significance. He knew that there was something, but he was absolutely powerless. He couldn't do anything because he didn't even know what they meant he knew that they were significant but he had no power what an amazing picture that is who has no power in this narrative the supreme ruler of the whole of the known world as far as the narrative is concerned the supreme ruler the head of the greatest empire that the world had seen up to that point in time, the Pharaoh of the empire of Egypt itself is powerless. Isn't that amazing? Powerless. The voice of God is not seen in that incredible, authoritative, glorious, elevated role of of Pharaoh, the voice of God is seen in the weakness of a Hebrew slave in prison. That's incredible. We're reminded in the New Testament, Paul says, or God says through Paul, My strength is made perfect, or is seen to be perfect, or is worked out to perfection through your weakness. That's a, that is a powerful message for the church to hear, I think. In a, in a world which is constantly clamoring to be seen, to be known, to be powerful, to be exalted. There is a confidence in being able to say we are weak and helpless and powerless and yet at the same time we carry the most powerful message in the whole of this world. The message of the good news of the God of the Bible who is a faithful, loving God and we see that worked out in His Son Jesus. That is a powerful message. And yet, where is it seen? It's seen in weakness. In fact, if we look back over the history of the church, the times when that message has become obscured, the times when that message has been uh, lost as the voice of the church, are precisely the times when the church has become powerful. Isn't that incredible? The good message that the church is to proclaim is lost when the church becomes powerful. And yet what we see repeated in history is when the church is weak and powerless, the message is sounding out with great power. Just like here, in, in, in Egypt of all places, in the courtroom of Pharaoh of all places... A scrubbed up Hebrew slave who's had a shave and a clean and now smells fresh and is acceptable before the king is still a Hebrew slave. He is still that. If he's put back in prison from that audience with the Pharaoh, he is in no different state. Clothes that he probably isn't allowed to take back into prison. If he was, they would still become worn. His beard would become bedraggled. He would stink within a few weeks. He is no different and yet he carries the supreme authoritative message of God. Now that shapes how we think. Do we think and do we live Do we allow the message of the Bible, the message of the living God in our lives, to permeate every little aspect of our lives? Does it shape us in everything? Because it did Joseph. He's known, isn't he? He's referred to as a Hebrew. There is no hiding who he is. In fact, he's very clear, point two. So if the dreams are the voice of God, point two, the interpreter is God. What does he say in verse uh, 16 when Pharaoh asks for the answer? In exactly the same way as he said to the cupbearer and the baker, I cannot do it, but God will give Pharaoh the answer he desires. He knows where the power is. He knows where the interpretation is. He knows where the supreme authority is. It is in God, not in me. I find that amazing. That, that Joseph, who is in a prison with a cupbearer and a baker, who are at exactly the same level as him, they are prisoners as well, They are helpless and hopeless. When they ask for an interpretation of the dream, he says, I can't give it, but God can. And when he finds himself exalted to the highest level, where he is speaking to the supreme ruler, Pharaoh, he says exactly the same thing, pretty much. It's God who can do it. His life is shaped in every aspect in every situation, by an absolute commitment that the God who he believes in is the God who is the power behind him in every situation. That is the God who is supreme. And one of the problems I think we have is that we go into many aspects of our life and we we compartmentalize our Christian faith. We believe in God. Maybe, Maybe you don't. Maybe you don't. This might be, uh, maybe you don't believe in God. Maybe you you haven't accepted Jesus as your Savior at this point in time. This could be really helpful for you in understanding the implications of faith in Jesus Christ. One of the things that we struggle with and stumble with as believers in Jesus Christ is we tend to compartmentalize it. We say our faith impacts that bit. It impacts that bit and that bit. You know, it impacts my time on a Sunday afternoon uh, and it impacts my time in this area of life and that area of life. And that's it. It doesn't impact this area of life, maybe my career. It doesn't impact my leisure time or the attitudes that I have and the decisions that I make during my leisure time. Leisure is a great thing. Activities are a great thing. Things that we can do are a great privilege of God in this world. We are made to enjoy all of those good things. But are we really, in our minds and in our thinking, shaping our attitude to those things in the light of the fact that I am a believer in Jesus Christ? Do I enter into my sports activity or my craft activity or my leisure activity, my socializing activity? Do I live in every aspect shaped by that? I guess we don't. And yet, Joseph is an example that that he's living that day by day. Not perfectly, but he's portrayed in that way so that we might be encouraged to remind ourselves that's how I need to live so that I go into work tomorrow. And the issue that confronts me, which looks as though the the power and the authority in the workplace is greater than God, and so I will bow and I will bend to that power and authority and forget who I am as a believer in Jesus Christ. And yet what we are called to do is to believe that the power and authority of the living God who we believe and who we trust in is greater than that power and authority. And therefore, I will be consistently who I am as a believer in Jesus Christ. And it might end up (laughs) with me being in the dungeon, figuratively speaking. But that's okay. That's okay. Because God has not left me when I'm in the dungeon as we saw last week. He is still with me. In fact, what do we see working out in this? The wisdom of God. The wisdom of God, firstly, is this incredible thought, isn't it? Joseph would not be speaking to Pharaoh unless the cupbearer had forgotten. I found, when I just reflected on that this past week, Joseph had to trust for two years and believe that all of this is in the hand of God who is my God. And two years later, he's speaking to Pharaoh. And it seems within minutes, the way the narrative unfolds, he is raised to the highest level in the country, save for Pharaoh himself. That's incredible, isn't it? That would not have happened if the cupbearer had remembered. And yet the wisdom of God is worked out in the ordinary events of this life. The ordinary things. So the wisdom of God is my confidence. If I do end up in a dungeon, if it looks as if the wheels have fallen off, whatever my hopes were, I can believe that God is still ahead of this. There is another something, whatever it might be. And you say, well, how far do you take that? We take that as far as the believers in Jesus who we see reflected in the New Testament who are prepared to say, my faith in Jesus is such that if I end up in prison, there is something beyond this. Uh, And James is killed and Peter is released. And Peter has one something beyond this, which is a whole life of continuing to serve and to minister the message of the gospel until once again he's in a prison and he doesn't come out of prison. He leaves that prison and enters into the glory of presence with Jesus. And James doesn't even leave that prison. And yet James has something beyond this which is the presence of Jesus Christ. It is that absolute confidence that the wheel ultimately cannot fall off because I'm in His hands, even if it means death. The wisdom of God is great. The wisdom of God is worked out in the next 14 years. I find that incredible. The wisdom of God is worked out in the next 14. 14 years in Egypt the wisdom of God is worked out through Joseph I think there is a lot that this world now in our current economic issues could learn from Joseph do we enact globally wise economic policies Which are prudent and frugal in times of plenty, so that in times of poverty we are protected. Do we do that on a vast, grand economic level? No. Do we do it on a country level? No. Do we do it very often on a personal level? No. What do we do? We don't work out wisely. And yet the mercy of God is seen in God's intervention on day one. And His mercy is worked out over the next 14 years. Look at verse 32. It says this, Joseph gives the reason why there are two dreams. I found that interesting. That in this occasion, the two dreams, the reason for the two dreams is given. And in a sense, the reason for the two dreams here is the reason for the two dreams in the previous two situations. The reason the dream was given to Pharaoh in two forms is that the matter has been firmly decided by God, and God will do it soon. Do you see that little play on words? It's been decided by God, and God will do it soon. There is a commitment to that in two phases. It's almost as if the two dreams are a sort of a play on that idea. They're both saying, this is what God's decided and this is what God's going to do. It's almost a play to say, do you understand that the wisdom of God is seen in His determination to work out what is going to happen? And then you say, two dreams God has decided and God will do these two dreams only work out over 14 years? How many years does it take for Joseph's dreams, two dreams, to work out? So that the stars bowing down to the star and the, and the sheaves of corn bowing down to the sheaves of corn, what do those two dreams back there say? They say in exactly the same way that God has decided it and God will do it. God is not just the interpreter of dreams. God is the doer of dreams as well. And Joseph's exaltation and the wisdom worked out in that is a glory to God. Joseph suddenly finds himself from a dungeon within minutes elevated to this high level for seven years, enacting, and let's, let's just put that into perspective, shall we? He then masterminds at the highest level of this civilization the gathering in of grain, the building of storehouses, and the gathering in of grain for seven years. That, that is a mammoth, colossal task, isn't it? If we look back, and maybe some of us have been to some sort of, you know, World Heritage sites or some great archaeological places where we've been given a little bit of an insight into some of the great things that have been done. Joseph does this across a whole nation for seven years, so that for the next seven years, Egypt is blessed. That is an incredible work that is done but the narrator wants us to understand it is God who is working it out in Joseph I think that if there would be a tendency if this happened today that Joseph would write a book or they'd do a documentary on the rags to riches success story of Joseph the made good kid from the Hebrew shepherding community who reached the highest level of Egypt. And you know what? Some of the Egyptians would have looked at it in exactly that way. They would not have seen beyond. But the narrator wants us to understand it is God who is working it out. You might be successful you might be successful in whatever it is that you are doing. You need to understand that your success is because God is granting that very success to you. It is God who has gifted you with those abilities. It is God who has given you those abilities to steward in a wise way so that there might be blessing worked out By the mercy of God in this world, granting you those abilities. And so we see that the wisdom is God's. And finally, the glory is to God. Joseph lives in the culture of Egypt. He went in at 17. He's 30 now. Seven years of riches and yet he's not forgotten who he is. He's not forgotten who he is. There's an amazing little verse. He has these two sons. The firstborn, in verse 51, it says the firstborn uh, is Manasseh. And it is because God has made me forget... "...all my trouble and all my father's household." The second son he named Ephraim and said, "...it is because God has made me fruitful in the land of my suffering." I find that interesting, isn't it? Manasseh's name is absolutely fascinating. For a start, there is some some debate, but Jewish scholars generally contend that these are Hebrew names. In the middle of Egypt, Joseph has not forgotten who he is. He says, (laughs) I'll call him Manasseh because God has made me forget all my trouble and all my father's household. But in that very statement, he hasn't forgotten, has he? He just hasn't forgotten. The fact that he says it's because I've forgotten means that it's still there at the forefront of his mind. But what he is believing in those statements is it is God, it is God who's overturning that crisis. It is God who is overturning that disaster. I was hated, I was abused, I was sold into captivity. But I believe that God has not left me. And therefore, although all of that suffering and pain and hurt is still there, I've not forgotten it, it is turned around because of my belief in this God who has had His hand on me. And the same God who was with Joseph has promised to be with those who believe in Him now. And therefore, we can say, I've not forgotten, and yet I have forgotten. (laughs) You know, we are shaped by our past, aren't we? Undoubtedly. We are shaped by our past. It does influence, it does affect us. We cannot let go of many of the things that hurt and destabilize and cause incredible impact on us. And yet faith in Jesus says, in one sense, in one sense, I am now who I am in Him. Because He is with me. And interestingly, he was with me back then, wasn't he? He was with Joseph. And more than taking away the kind of offense of the past, he has given me great blessing in this land. What did God say to Abraham? Through you, you will be a blessing to the nations. And within a few generations, the greatest nation on the earth is blessed by the faithful messenger of God. But millennia later, the whole of the world is blessed by the greatest Hebrew. The greatest of the sons. Sons of Abraham. The one who becomes the blessing to all the nations is in Jesus. The one who brings hope in famine, figuratively speaking, to all of the nations is in Jesus. What an incredible story unfolds in the life of Joseph.